back with episode 16 of Original Versus Cover with DJ Crystal Clear and my wonderful engineer, Dr. Paul Bertolino. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. So, you and I have discussed this before, and I know that I really shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to date this episode because I think in the future it's going to be important for people to know what was going on. (laughs) So... I I have to do it. So, episode 15 was posted on March 23rd. And that was when shit was getting real here. Everyone was confused and freaking out. And this country was a total shit show because of the dotard in the White House. My last day of work was Wednesday, March 11th. And that was the night they shut down the NBA. And now here we are, 121 days later. (laughs) Has it really been that long? It's really been 121 days, yeah. And shit is still getting real, everyone is still confused, and this country is still a total shit show because of the dotard in the White House. Today is Friday, July 9th, and we are dawning in the age of COVID-19. So, for you kids in the year 2525 listening to this, now you know what is happening. So, on with the show. My first song today is a song called Diamonds and Rust. And the original was done by Joan Baez from her album Diamonds and Rust in 1975. And the cover that I want to talk about was done by Judas Priest. Oh, yeah! <laughs> sin after sin! in ni- Synapse after synapse! <laughs> 1977. So, uh, I think you told me about this cover a while ago. I think we did discuss it kind of recently. Uh, Yeah. And um, so, the original... First, let me back up and say, I'm not a really big Joan Baez fan. I am not very big, and I'm not a Joan Baez fan. (laughs) I, yeah. I think it's something about... That voice, that fuck. I hate that voice. It's the... uh, Just the Billy Goat thing. I can't take it. And even though she's not as crazy with it as, say, Joni Mitchell is. Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie is. Everybody who does that stuff, it gives me a headache. I can't stand it. So that's, yeah, I'm not a big fan of hers. And uh, the opening guitar sounds were sound like a very angry acoustic guitar. And then it goes right into Joan Baez all the way with her signature, vocals and this is textbook 1977 folk rock it's like 25 acoustic guitars a low acoustic bass you can barely hear it very soft drums soaring strings a smidge of synths that makes some really weird noises in it the synth and um angry joan wrote composed and performed it all and did you know that this song was about her relationship with a one robert zimmerman well, what isn't? Isn't that the only thing she kind of has in her in her back pocket? I think so. I mean, I think so. Um, so, like her cover of "The Night They Drove All Dixie Down," it's good, but I kind of thought that it was unnecessary to make. Yeah, because it sounds like every time I hear it, it reminds me of. I like to teach the world to sing <laughs> yeah. in perfect harmony, you know. And uh, she covered his Forever Young, which is like, nah, it's okay. 
Yeah, the original one by Rod Stewart is much better. Much, much better. <laughs> uh, so then there's the cover. So this was an unfinished well it was sort of a it was a demo thing um it's a heavy metal folk song it's like it's this folk song that they did heavy metal so uh it was covered with edited lyrics by judas priest on their album sin after sin and it was originally recorded a year earlier for sad wings of destiny but not included on that album this early version appears on the Best of Judas Priest, Hero Hero, and some remasters of their first album, Rockarola. A live version of the song is on Unleashed in the East. <laughs> yeah. The song remains a staple of their live concert performances, and in recent years, Priest have performed a mostly acoustic version of the song that is more similar to than the original rock version on their recorded albums. Now, what Joan Baez had to say about the Judas Priest version... I love that. I was so stunned when I first heard it. I thought it was wonderful. It's very rare for people to cover my songs. <laughs> That's because uh, it's very rare for people to like your like songs. Like your songs. I think there are a couple of reasons. One is they're very personal. They don't have a universal quality to them. And I think maybe it's because I've already sung them. And who wants to compete with that? Yeah, who wants to <laughs> compete with the greatness of your vocal I'm like, stylings? Wow, ego? Uh, but it's always flattering when somebody does. So there are other cover versions of this that I will spare you um, by Blackmore's Night. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Do you spare me that? <laughs> S.O.D. I don't even know who that is. Great White. Oh, Jesus. Taylor Mitchell. I don't know who that is. And Thunderstone. I have no Thunderstone. idea. Thunderstone. Thunderstone. I don't know who that is either. Uh, the song has been sampled in two popular hip-hop songs that I've never heard of. Happiness by Bus Driver. An upgrade call by Andre Nicotine, Nicotina, Nicotana, something. <laughs> Andre somebody. And um, those versions are both uh, used where they're pitch warped to sound super squeaky. So uh, uh, now we're going to... Maybe that's the influence of Joan Baez. <laughs> I think so. So now we're going to listen to them and then make a decision as to who wins. <laughs> I, I don't I don't see the winner coming from a mile away on this. No, not at all. <clears throat> well, I'll be damned. Here comes your ghost again. But that's not unusual. It's just that the moon is full. And you happen to call. And here I sit. And on the telephone. I'd known a couple of light years ago, heading straight for a fall. As I remember, your eyes were bluer than robin's eggs. My poetry was lousy, you said. Where are you calling from? A booth in the West. Ten years ago I bought you some cufflinks You brought me something We both know what memories can bring They bring diamonds and rust I'll be damned Here comes your ghost again 
So, who's your winner, Paul? <laughs> Blackmore's Night. Blackmore's Night. You no, know, uh, obviously Judas Priest all day, every day. I mean, granted, yeah, on every level. That's the first pers- person, the first version that I ever heard was the Priest version. Oh, okay. I didn't know the Joan Baez song or track. Um, and, and oftentimes the first version of a song I hear can have the edge for that reason. But I mean, yeah, I mean, but it's also Judas Priest versus Joan Baez. Right. Well, that's an obvious pick. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just no, on every level. The thing is, is Priest could have done a really awful version. I mean, on paper, that sounds awful. It Judas sounds, Priest doing a Joan Baez song. It sounds ridiculous. Yeah. But it just happens to be that they did a really good version of it. Yeah. And, it, um, I mean, they made it work. They made it sound like a Judas Priest song. Yes, exactly. Because I heard the original first. I didn't hear the Priest until the album came out a little bit after. And, uh... When I first heard the Priest version, I thought, this is a song they could have written. Because it's like, it's a great rock ballad in the vein of what they would do or anybody else would do. And uh, it's, yeah, they made it sound great. So, yeah, obviously Judas Judas Priest wins. Totally. Totes. Yeah. Um, uh Nothing. I'm gonna cut that out. I, I felt like I had some oh, somewhere something to go else with to that. Add. Okay. And, and, and then <laughs> blank. And then suddenly it's Al Capone's vault. Oh, as long as Jerry Rivers is not around. All right. Song number two is a song called "You Are Everything." Now you and I talked about this in episode ten, where I put it up against Mary J. Blige's interpolation of the song. If you remember that. Kind, kind, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, so this is like, you know, straight up, the original was done by the Stylistics in 1971. And the cover version is done by Judas Priest. Ow! <laughs> uh, a demo from 1988. So the original, I feel as though I don't have to explain this. Because I feel as though everybody's heard it. At least once. The, the, the stylistics the version. The stylistics, oh, sure. the original version. It's a lush and intoxicating soul ballad written by Tom Bell and Linda Creed. Um, Philadelphia soul, crazy harmonies, groovy guitar effects, the strings, the horns, and the amazing falsetto lead vocal of Russell Tompkins Jr. It's just transcendent. It's so beautiful. Uh, oh, sorry, I have another cover. My bad. My oh. first cover is uh, Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye. And that was done on the Diana and Marvin album from 1973. Oh, shit. Yeah. It follows the arrangement, the original arrangement, with the drums are a bit louder, some guitar stuff, light strings, and Marvin, to me, sounds kind of stiff. But now that I've done some research, I know why he sounds stiff. Because he... No. Sorry. <laughs> uh, wait, I, I won't make that joke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Marvin, we know what kind of guy you were. Initial plans to make the Ross Gay duet album began as early as 1970, but due to Marvin Gaye being in a personal lull following the death of Tammy Terrell, Motown failed to bring the two together and instead focused on Ross's emerging solo career. Not Motown, that's Barry Gordy Jr. focused on that. Uh, which didn't take off until the release of her cover of Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's Ain't No Mountain High Enough, ironically. 
That became a huge international hit. However, during that time, Gay had made a promise that he would never again record a duet with a female performer because he felt they were cursed by recording with him. So Mary Wells abruptly left Motown following the end of the Together album and her career, career failed to recover. Kim Weston also abruptly left the label following the end of their Take Two sessions. And Terrell's complications with a brain tumor, which later resulted in her death, made duets between her and Gay difficult. So he felt that he was a jinx. <laughs> I, I, I'm a lady. I'm a lady killer, but in a, in the bad way. In the bad way. <laughs> in the worst way. He was a lady killer, but in, in, in multiple ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, engineer Russ Tarana later recalled that the start of the sessions met with difficulty as Gay, who had the habit of coming to recording studios late, came unusually early, but was inside the studio smoking reefer. No. Yes. Uh, Tarana said when Ross, who was still pregnant with her first child, her daughter Rhonda, walked in, she immediately walked out, upset that Gay was smoking reefer, I love how they say reefer, and told Gordy to stop him from smoking because of her pregnancy, fearing her baby might die from the smoke. When Gordy (laughs) asked Gay to put the reefer out, Gay told him, if I can't smoke, I can't sing. Eventually, however, Gay did put out the reefer. I, they keep saying reefer. And Ross re-entered the studio with Gay recording a cover of Wilson Pickett's Don't Knock My Love. According to the album's later liner notes, Ross hated Don't Knock My Love and reportedly asked Gay, why are we recording this song? <laughs> so now that we know he was as high as a kite while he was recording it, I kind of understand why he sounds weird. Yeah. Because he definitely sounds stiff. But he, but his claim that he can't sing without doing it, I mean, that's that's not his overall mo there. No, it's not like he was in the studio doing what's going on, going, oh, I oh, can't sorry, sing unless can't. I smoke pot. Yeah, that's I'm sorry, reefer. Kind of cr- yes, reefer. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. That sounds really weird. It just sounds really weird. So, uh, be the Judas Priest cover of this. So it was long discussed but never released. The tracks recorded during some downtime while the British metal vets were working on 1988's Ramp, Ram It Down LP. Terrible album. Terrible. Found Judas Priest working with the hit-making team behind pop sensations such as Rick Astley, Bananarama, and Samantha Fox. The sessions produced three songs. Judas Priest versions of a pair of Stock Aitken Waterman originals, Run Around and I Will Return, as well as this stylistics cover. At various points over the years, members of Priest have indicated that the Stock Aitken Waterman sessions were nothing but an experiment that they never really intended to release. In a 2014 interview with The Aquarian, Glenn Tipton mused, I don't think they'll ever see the light of day. Meanwhile, Halford told the New York Post, that he'd love to release them, but there's a different consensus within the band. Our rendition of You Are Everything is just beautiful. It's an 80s mega rock ballad with big drums, big vocals, sweeping strings. People are a lot more open-minded now, whereas in those days it could have created a bit of pushback, maybe even some damage to our reputation. It was, Halford admits, his idea. And an exercise he still thinks was worthwhile, despite the fact that the results remained filed away. We signed a piece of paper that says that when we're all dead, they can release them. 
Alfred Jope to the Aquarian. I personally love those songs. They're fucking great. We've never been afraid to try everything. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And the exercise of those songs totally worked, but they were completely wrong for us, if that makes sense. And the manner of the adventure going for going to Paris for three days, I'm totally responsible for for that because I just said to Glenn one day, what do you think about this deal? Let's do it. We never shut each other down. Even the most ridiculous things sometimes are ridiculous. But you don't know until you carry out the exercise. That's what we did. We went over there and we had a blast. Now you you've heard this, right? Uh no, I don't I don't know if it's I mean, have you have you found it? Uh, well, it was in an article, and no, I mean the track. Oh yeah, because I because I don't know I don't know if I'm going to be able to find an actual track to put it's, into this. Uh, it's on videos on YouTube. Oh okay, so so, so people so the the bootlegs have yeah they've leaked. surfaced. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. It's so funny when people say, "Oh, well, you know, maybe this will come. Maybe this will see the light of day after we're dead." Give me a break. It's like, come on, all the fans. Yeah. Yeah. People have, people have leaked this shit. Only thing that hasn't seen the light of day yet is one that's in listenable condition. It's going to be bootleggy, but <laughs> yeah. the performance will be there. Yeah. And this has been around since 2014. Hmm. So, you know, it's available. You can YouTube it and look it up. So we're going to listen to a snippet of both of these and then and then pick a winner. <laughs> oh. This is another big mystery. Who will win? Who will win? So, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's the stylistics, duh. Yeah. Um. But you know, that priest cover. 
There's something about it. Yeah, it's called shittiness. I, I'm just... <laughs> but... I mean... It sounds like... If some shittier band did it, you know, like if it was Great White or what, like some C-level metal, hair hair metal band, you yeah. know, like it's borderline jokey, like tragedy needs to do this. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it's, yeah, it doesn't sound like they're being sincere. No, because, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. And what was he smoking that he woke up one day and it was like, let's record a song with these producers of these crazy pop hits. You know, it was the late 80s and people people had gotten so fucking far gone on cocaine and the will to, to sell even more records. Even more records, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And the thing is, is that the whole Joan Baez cover thing had been his idea as well. And that is, again, such a, uh, on paper, such a, such an awful pairing that worked so spectacularly. I could see where he'd been like, where he was just, you know, like, yeah, we can do this. This will work, you know. <laughs> we will make it work. Yeah. Yeah. That that chorus, when you listen to it again closely, like, he does his scream on the top, you could, which ruins it. I mean, not that it wasn't already ruined, but he didn't have to do that. Anyway, people, you know, Google it, because it's just, it's fucking ridiculous. All right, song number three is Sunshine of Your Love, done by Cream, their album Disraeli Gears in 1967. And I have two covers for this. The first one, by The Fifth Dimension. And the second one, by Ella Fitzgerald. Have you heard the Ella Fitzgerald? I've heard these, and, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. So, every... I'm not... I don't have to say anything about the original. <laughs> it's, is there a Mae West cover of that? She has that Way Out West album where she does a bunch of... Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know. She might. I, yeah, I don't remember distinctly, but that's that's something that would be on that. It, yeah, it makes sense. Well, in researching this, there was something that I did not know who had his mitts in this whole thing. So, Cream per- performed their first American concerts here in New York City in 1967. Robert Stigwood was their manager... <laughs> I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, he's 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 early on. He well, he was associated with. He was kind of part of uh, Brian Epstein's kind of uh, uh, yeah. stable of guys. Okay, that I, that I did not know. I mean, I knew he was more than the Bee Gees and other disco stuff, but I did not know he was Cream's manager. Um, he booked them for a Murray the K package show at the RKO Manhattan Theater from March 25th to April 2nd, 1967. When it was finished, Stigwood arranged for a recording session with Emmett Erdogan and at Atlantic Studios. So Bruce and Brown had a number of new songs in various stages of development and entered the studio on April 3rd. Initially, Erdogan assigned Dowd to work with the trio. Dowd had worked with many of the biggest jazz and rhythm and blues musicians in the 50s and 60s. However, Cream was his first exposure to extreme volume levels. The group arrived at Atlantic with their concert setup of multiple Marshall amps, each 100 watts. Dowd was surprised by the amount of equipment accompanying the trio. He said they recorded at ear-shattering level. Everyone I'd worked with before was using Fender Deluxes, which were about 20 watts, or Twins at about 80 watts, six- and seven-piece bands that didn't play as loud as this three-piece did. 
And then Erdogan brought in producer Felix Paprilardi. I didn't know that. Or I forgot about that. Uh, who he believed could be a go-between between, between uh, the group and Dowd. They began Strange Brew, Tales of Brave Ulysses, and Sunshine of Your Love. Erdogan previewed the demos and was unhappy because he was expecting more blues-based material that was found on Fresh Cream. Jerry Wexler, Erdogan's Atlantic Records partner, reportedly went as far as to call it Psychedelic Hogwash. <laughs> That's my new band that name. That they're still the making boatloads of money off of today. today. Yeah. However... Two Black Men Save the Day, Booker T. Jones from Booker T. and the MGs, and Otis Redding, both whose Stax recordings at the time were distributed by Atco Parent Atlantic, gave Sunshine of Your Love their wholehearted approval. Differences were smoothed over by the time Cream returned in May 1967 to finish recording the rest of the Disraeli Gears album. Now, I didn't know that, that Booker T. and Otis Redding gave it the high sign. Yeah, and uh, well, also Eric Clapton, um, some of his '70s stuff is on RSO Records. Oh, it, oh, it is. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. And so that, yeah, that connection is definitely there. Wow. And for you uh, gearheads out there, um, Clapton's guitar used a sound known as the woman tone on his 1964 Gibson SG Standard. Uh, an author, Mitch Gallagher, describes it as a smooth, dark, singing, sustaining sound. It's one of the best-known examples of the woman tone and quotes the melody from the perennial pop standard, Blue Moon. By using the song's major pentatic scale, uh, Clapton provides a contrast with the riff's blues scale. A writer for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes it as creating a balance between the sun and the moon. And Baker... Oh, Ginger. Plays much of the song on his tom-toms, described as sounding African by Schumacher or Native American by Shapiro. Kovach and Boone note the concentrates on the lower tom sounds and uses an articulation and sound reminiscent of the jazz drumming in the Woody Herman or Benny Goodman bands, which is something I hadn't thought of at first, but then I remember like their version of Sing, Sing, Sing. It's like all that tom action in the beginning. Right, right. I yeah. Like that. So, yeah. Oh, and Papillardi was so upset with Atlantic's reaction to Cream's early recordings. When he joined Leslie West to form Mountain, he chose to work with another record label. <laughs> so, I guess he gave Amit the finger. He's like, fuck you, man. And so the covers, The Fifth Dimension. Uh, they follow the arrangement for the most part. The drums were changed a little bit. They don't copy the one and three beat with the toms, which Ginger Baker said he created, by the way, uh, but with horns and five voices instead of two voices. The vocal arrangement is very 60s. It kind of sounds odd because Billy and the guys are singing in a minor key and feel kind of stiff and soulless, which I'm not that fond of, and the women's voices are high and swirling all over the place. And then the uh, Ella Fitzgerald from her album Live 1969. It's like, it's from, uh, I think the Montreux Jazz Festival was where it was recorded. And so there's crazy opening horns and Ernie Heckscher's big band and Tommy Flanagan, or Flanagan. Um, this is like the craziest, funkiest they ever got. She was getting jiggy with it, cutting loose, um, bebopping and scatting all over it. The band went crazy. This is 3 minutes and 14 seconds of total insanity, and you have to watch the video of it. 
Uh, it's a little more low key because it's done during her nightclub act, and the piano is the lead instrument, and the drums are pretty jazzy. And that was from the Montreux Jazz Festival. The other thing was just from a live show. And it is bananas. So we're going to listen to these three things and then pick pick a winner. There was so much of that going on in the 60s where people like that would try to get hip to the new music yes. and they just didn't have there was just this whole different <laughs> soul to the to the to the music to the newer music at that time that just the, the, the just even just the previous generation just could not wrap their heads around no you know because I, I listened to there's this station this this old there was the San Francisco station called KABL and it was well the the Sid Mark South oh. Sinatra would always be on that yes, stage. Yes, it was yes. one of those stations that played that kind of stuff. Right. And every once in a while, something will pop up, and it'll be just some awful 
stiff version of yesterday and I'll go and it's like oh Shirley Bassey and it's just like ugh uh, yeah. and it's just and, and that isn't even that song isn't even that much shouldn't be that much of a stretch and yet it still sounds like your grandma trying to trying to wrap her head around you know fucking Aerosmith right this you is know and thing? it's just like what yeah you know and yeah it, it's it just it just doesn't work well I think we have Frank Sinatra to blame first and foremost yeah. for trying to get hip and with it uh, I forget what song we talked about in one in a previous episode um, but uh, you know I well the fifth dimension version I do not like that's it's a bit well yeah it's pretty milk toast yeah I was just if I hadn't known that it was them I would have sworn it was like a bunch of like uh, like the backup singers for Perry Como or something. It just it's so yes, it's very Ray Conniff. Thank you. It's <laughs> mighty white, as my mother used to say. It's mighty white. But you know, I gotta say the Ella Fitzgerald cover. I kind of like it. I mean, it's 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 okay. It's just it's just it just sounds so. I don't think it's great. I think it's very hackneyed. Yeah. Especially because the horns. I mean, just like blasting yeah. right out of the gate, <laughs> just trying too hard. And I need to, I should have researched to find out how old she was when that was recorded. Because it was 1969. Because when you look at the video of her singing it, she looks like she's in her 60s or something. And, but it was always hard, kind of hard to tell how old Elle Fitzgerald was after she was 30 because she kind of looked the same until almost to the time she died. Like she looked like an older woman, but you just weren't sure whether she was 50 or 70. <laughs> the whole right. black don't crack thing, yeah, you know? right, right. And then right before she died, that's when she started looking really old, like the week before she died. So, you know, in this video, she is she has, uh, you know, she's always sweating, so she has her, her kerchief in her hand, and she's, you know, like blotting her sweat, and she's actually dancing around, and it's, it's kind of funny to see it's in black and white, too. It's... I don't know. It's kind of endearing to me, but I'm sorry. The original is the best. Yeah. It's cream. Yeah. I mean, all the way. <clears throat> but, you know, I'll give uh I'll give Ella some points for that cuz I liked it. All right. Song number 4. Spill the Wine by Eric Burden and War, which was a single only released in 1970. And then the cover is the Isley Brothers from their Giving It Back album in 1971. So the original first appeared on the album Eric Burden Declares War and runs 4 minutes and 51 seconds. Uh, There are a lot of people, I think everybody in war got a writing credit on this. Papa D. Allen, Harold Brown, Eric Burden, B.B. Dickerson, Lonnie Jordan, Charles Miller, Lee Oscar, and Howard E. Scott. Uh, the song was inspired by an accident in which keyboardist Lonnie Jordan spilled wine on a mixing board. <laughs> uh, it features a prevalent flute solo and the sound of a woman speaking Spanish, who apparently was a friend of Eric's. And uh, the edited version released as a promo single for radio stations and subsequently included on most compilations omits that middle spoken recitation plus one chorus. Everybody knows how this song goes. Um, to me, it sounds like Eric Burden was really high and made up some kooky story and put a flute in it. 
Well, that's just it. I think that's why probably everybody has writing credit is because it, the music, musically it was probably a jam that yeah. they all came up with on the spot. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I mean, lyrically and vocally, it, it sounds like, on the record, it sounds like Eric Burton is improvising. Yeah, it sounds like a weirdo demo to me. Yeah. And I don't like it. I don't like this song. Yeah, I, I kind of do. I, I always kind of liked it, kind of didn't like it. Blah, 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 Hollywood movie. It's like, I don't care about this. (laughs) (laughs) And then the chorus. What? Spill the wine, take that girl. I don't know. It's not a good song. So, as for the Isley Brothers cover, it sounds exactly like Ronald singing lead for Santana. And it, I, don't, I don't like it. It mm. sounds exactly like Santana is his backing band. It's one of the weirdest... It's... Yeah. It's weird. So we're going to listen to it, and then you'll make up... We're going to listen to it, and then you're going to pick the Eric Burton and then I'm gonna p- <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pick something, but... It, I, yeah. Alright, so let's check these things out. summer's day when I thought I'd lay myself down to rest in a big field of tall grass I lay there in the sun and felt it caressing my face as I fell asleep and dreamed I dreamed I was in a Hollywood movie And that I was the star of the movie This really blew my mind The fact that me An overfed, long-haired, leaping gnome Should be the star of a Hollywood movie Lady, 
it's just too meandering. You can't, you can't, it's not possible to do a good cover of that. Yeah. I feel it's such an odd, like, why would you want to cover that song? It seems really weird to me, especially for the Isley Brothers to do. They, uh, like a billion other rock songs they could have covered and crushed like they did with Seals and Crofts and some other things. But this is just like, this sounds really lame. It sounds like a wedding band <laughs> to me. And, you know, I love Ronald's falsetto and his voice, obviously, but he just, it seems very um, disjointed. It's not smooth. It just, yeah, because he, he can't not sound sexy, you know? But this is just terrible. So who wins? Nobody. We all lose. <laughs> We're all losers yeah. in that. Yeah, well, I'd give it to Eric Burden, but, you know, just because it's the the original one. one. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I've always liked not liked it. Yeah, there's just something about it that's just kind of like, eh. maybe get back to us when you've written the song. Yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it, the other reason I hate it is because it's one of those songs that drunken people always play in a bar if it's in a jukebox. Right. Because everybody's... Right, everybody and that's when everybody starts singing. Nobody knows any, a single other word. Word, only the chorus. And then the chorus comes in and the entire place erupts. Yeah, I, I, that's another reason why I hate it. I, I'm surprised we haven't heard that at Washington Square Park. You know, you're right. <laughs> Way too much Sky Pilot. Not enough spill the wine. Uh, maybe somebody will be listening and get in on that. Okay. Song number five is Freddy's Dead. And the original was done by Curtis, or a Curtis <laughs> Mayfield. Uh, it was on the Superfly soundtrack in 1972, and I have two covers here. The first one by MFSB. Uh, from their album Deep Grooves, done in 1975, and then Fishbones cover from their album, their second album, Truth and Soul, 1988, or what could be considered as their first album, because their first release was an EP. All right, so Freddie's Dead, I think everybody's heard this, is a song by Curtis Mayfield, uh, the first single from that soundtrack album Superfly, and this single was released before the album, and before the movie was even in theaters. The song peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 and number two on the R&B chart, which I'm kind of surprised about. Uh, Billboard has ranked it as the number 82 song for the year 1972. The song laments the death of Fat Freddy, a character in the film who was run over by a car. That's why Freddy's dead. Uh, like most of the music from the Superfly album, it appears in the film only as an instrumental arrangement without any lyrics. And the song's music is featured prominently in the opening sequence and recurs at several other points. Because of this usage, the song was subtitled Theme from Superfly on its single release, but not on the album. It is not to be confused with Superfly, a different song, and the second single released from the album. The arrangement is driven by a strong bass line, wah-wah guitars, and a melancholy string orchestration. This, to me, is one of the funkiest songs ever. Curtis's falsetto, his unique guitar tuning, lyrics about a fat drug dealer who got hit by a car. Um, 
Strings, horns, hand claps, intricate lyrics, and a prominent flute. Flute was big back then. So the first cover by MFSB, which is, of course, it's an instrumental, so MFSB would do it. It opens with a familiar riff and then turns into a jazz thing with a sax solo, which is weird to do to an already great instrumental. It, it actually sounds like a completely different song after like the first couple of measures, which I th is weird. They just should have left, left it up to the original arrangement, left it alone. And then the Fishbone cover is genius, I think. They stick to the original arrangement, but they put their own stink on it. Um, the hard rocking guitars, excuse me, some synths, a tambourine with the trademark trombone and little cornet, and Norwood on the backing vocals. So, we're going to listen to these three and then pick a winner. So I have to say, 
<laughs> that the MS mother, father, sister, brother version. Yeah, it was literally the opening riff, and then it turned into some jazz bow thing, which is not good. So it's basically take five. Do they return to the riff at the end? No, like take five. They they don't. They go. They stick with that shit through the rest of the thing. Mm. It's really dumb. And uh, I love the fishbone cover. And I will say that I they don't uh, they make it fishbone like they put their stink on it. But it's not drastically different from the original, except that it's like guitars. It's heavier and louder. Um, I'm happy that they followed the arrangement, basically, to the letter. And I think, emotionally, uh, that's what makes me really like it, is the emotions that go along with that song. Because Fishbone was really great. Um, Well, they still are. And that was a surprise on their second record. Like, Freddie's dead. What the fuck? People lost their shit over there. Oh, my God, that's amazing. So I thought it was a very well-chosen cover and that they did it justice. But I'm sorry. Come on. It's Curtis Mayfield all the way. Yeah. Yep. There's no getting around that. Because he was a genius. All right. Last song for this episode, number 16 is called A Lot of Love. (laughs) And um, I was mistaken because I thought that the cover was the original. But I was wrong. So the original was done by Neil Young uh, from the album Comes a Time. He recorded it with Crazy Horse in 1978. And then the cover was done by Nicolette Larson from her album Nicolette, which was also done in 1978 a couple of months later. So, the original, it's Neil Young. It sounds like a demo. It's super sparse. His vocals are multi-tracked to the nth degree. There's a lead piano, acoustic guitars, basic what I call your California drums. Um, You can barely hear the bass. And I think that that's Linda Ronstadt singing the ooze in a few spots. I don't think that this is really that great. Because I think it sounds like a demo. Yeah, I've never been that into the Neil Young version of that. Actually, I think Nicolette Larson herself is the one singing backing vocals on that album. Um, She's on the album, but not on that song. Not on that song, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the Nicolette Larson cover... So this is what Linda Ronstadt says about it. Uh, She sang back up for Young with Larson on that album, has stated that it was her, Linda's suggestion, that Larsa that Larson record a lot of love, and that Larson's producer thanked Linda Ronstadt by having a top-of-the-line sound system installed in her Mercedes convertible. <laughs> now, Nicolette Larson says uh, that the suggestion she record a lot of love originated with Neil Young, with whom she had formed a personal relationship while backing him vocally on American Stars and Bars. The publishers of Neil Young News quoted Larson as saying... I got that song off a tape I found lying on the floor of Neil's car. I popped the tape in the player and commented on what a great song it was. Neil said, you want it? It's yours. So, speaking of her cover, talk about A Night and Day. It is super produced. 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything but the kitchen sink. I'm surprised Phil Spector didn't do this. But no, it turned out to be Ted Templeman who produced it. So no surprises there. It has this crazy lush string arrangement, a sax solo. The rhythm section is classic California laid-back rock. I don't know if any of those avocado people were in that band, but it sure sounds like it. And... This is the kind of song you imagine listening to while you're driving to Manhattan Beach in your VW convertible. Um, And I think that this song qualifies as Yacht Rock. Arguably, yeah. But I've never heard it covered by any of those Yacht Rock bands. Right. Yeah, I don't know. But I... Yeah. You can make a case for that, though. Yeah, I think so. And what's funny is that... um, So my mom took me to see that No Nukes concert. Was at, was Nicolette Lawson at that show? She was there. And she sang it, but they did not put it in the movie. Like, you can see her in the movie, like, singing back in vocals for other people and, like, backstage and talking and shit, but they did not put her version uh, in the movie. And the backing band was the Doobie Brothers. Which is why my mom wanted to go, because she wanted to see the Doobie Brothers. Um, So, yeah. It was included on the album, but not in the movie. So, (laughs) we're going to listen to these and then pick a winner. winner there paul (laughs) well 
<laughs> it seems strange to say, but I'm going to pick Nicolette Larson over Neil Young. What? Yeah. I'm shocked. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's Nicolette all day here. It's a, And it's the one time I'm not mad at Ted Templeman, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was... Yeah, yeah. Her, her track is much better. The thing is, is that, uh, you know... Neil didn't give that track any much love because I don't think he thought that much of the song. Apparently, he said that he wanted it to sound like he was heartbroken. So that's oh, why. Oh, okay. Well, he wanted it to sound like every song he ever recorded. Then, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, was all of Crazy Horse there? I guess. Whatever. It's weird. So, um, so that's episode number sixteen of Original Versus Cover. And uh, the, it's still raining outside. Still it's, dreaming. Still, it's hot. It's uh, humid. And um, yeah, we're going to go on and record episode 17, make a day of it. So thank you for listening. I hope that you all learned something. And uh, we're back. <laughs> Happy motoring. Happy motoring.